Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 153 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. This week's episode features an Italian photographer who produces two podcasts, including The Traveling Image Makers and Closing the Gap. He runs and manages multiple photography travel tours across the globe and happens to be a really outstanding guy. Welcome Ugo Che to the podcast. We had a fun conversation this week and covered some great topics, including his recent journey into large format film and what he's learned from it, the impact of the coronavirus on his business and travel photography, getting to know a culture and how that's impacted his photography, and what Ugo has learned about marketing over the years, and a lot more, of course. Over on Patreon this week, we talked all about Ugo's 2015 article, which was entitled, Will the Real Landscape Photography Please Stand Up? Please stand up. (laughs) All right, well, before we get started, I wanted to remind you to join us for conversation, image critique, and a lot more over on Nature Photographers Network or NPN. NPN is the premier community for landscape and nature photographers. They recently did an AMA, which is Ask Me Anything, with Guy Tao, which was quite interesting and entertaining. Listeners of the podcast can get a 60-day free trial to NPN. Just follow the link in the show notes. And just a warning, if you don't join our patron, Michael Rung, we'll just send you various facts about cats over and over and over again. (laughs) All right, let's get to the show. Well, Ugo Che, man, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's uh, It's been a while since I've been following you, and I remember you were a guest on my podcast. That was uh, quite some time ago, so it's uh, it's great to reconnect. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm excited to kind of see what you've been up to and also talk about some of the um, interesting things that you've been doing recently. Uh, for people that aren't familiar with you, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm a photographer from Italy. I've been photographing since I was uh, basically a teenager. But then uh, I kind of, I mean, I, I was always a, like a casual snapshot taking photographer uh, during much of my life. But uh, I think I became serious about photography about 15 years ago or so. Uh, getting more and more into it, involved into it, until I finally made it a profession. So I get at least part of my income through photography. I still have another job, but uh, the, the the photography part is growing more and more. Uh, interesting. It all it all started with digital. Mm. My I was working in uh, in IT. I was working as a software developer, and at the time I was going to developer conferences. And I realized that the hobby that everybody had was photography. Maybe because as geeks, as uh, developers, the, the the fact that we could process our photos with computers, and sometimes we could even write our own algorithms to process those photos, 
was appealing to to so many geeks. So everybody was carrying a, a digital camera around, and I said, "Well, maybe I should do it myself." And when I go to those conferences, I should uh, bring my camera as well. So that that's basically how it started. <laughs> that's awesome. I'm. You said um, at some point you kind of made the decision to make some of your income in photography. And I'm kind of curious what that transition looked like. Um, initially it was like uh, starting to to sell some prints. I did some exhibitions. I sold a few prints. I I was uh, a bit into stock photography as well. Uh, but uh, my main activity as a photographer nowadays is that of uh, of a tour organizer, a photo tour organizer. Mm. It all basically started when I was vacationing with family and friends in in Greece, and this this other friend, uh, she who was uh, he was with me, and he he was a he has a big he is a big expert about Greece. So we said, and he's also a photographer. We said, why don't we combine our knowledge of Greece and uh, and a love of photography, and we try to organize a photo tour to some of the Greek islands? I said, oh, okay, well. Let's try. So, so we started with uh, promoting a, a Greek islands tour, and and then it all grew from that. Basically, starting adding more and more destinations. Uh, initially, with this friend of mine, then uh, uh, I went alone, and this is how it started. Hmm. What are some of the barriers keeping you from from just pursuing that one hundred percent of your time? I think essentially is the security. <laughs> uh, say, uh, is the security the right word or let's say job security right the stability more like stability right having a stable source of income or an alternative source of income is still important for me i cannot uh, the, the the business is growing it's still growing but it's growing a bit in leap and bounds you're never sure when you when you put out a, a new tour uh, will it fill or even putting up uh, out again uh, a tour that has been already successful the previous year, uh, will it still be successful the next year? Will mm-hmm. I have enough people to, to make a profit? That's that's the big issue. Especially now with uh, with this coronavirus, where I'm hearing that more and more uh, of people who do the same, who have the same kind of business are being hit hard by this because people just don't travel. You basically cannot travel to some destinations. I was going to have... Uh, together with my friend Steve Simon, a workshop here in uh, in Italy, in Milan, a street photography workshop in April, which we decided to postpone. Uh, not because it's not safe. I mean, uh, I would advise anyone to, to come to Milan, maybe not exactly now, but in a couple of weeks. I'm, in, a, in April, I'm pretty sure everything will be back to normal. But right now, it's really hard to plan. And I, just the news of the other day was that Delta and American Airlines canceled all flights to Milan, which is kind of silly because you can always take a, a flight to Rome and then take a train to Milan. <laughs> doesn't take much longer. <laughs> but still, I mean, it's people are worried. Um, people are canceling uh, or people who are thinking of going on a, on a tour are saying, well, let's see how things pan out for in the coming months. I've got uh, a tour to Japan planned for November. I've got some people who are seriously thinking of coming, but they said, we would love to come. The program is great. The price is good. We love the, the we want to go to Japan. I've seen your photos. They're great. Uh, let's just wait how this thing pans <laughs> out. 
before we, we we commit, which is understandable, right? So, sure, you, I need to have an alternative essentially. <laughs> yeah, it's um, I've heard a lot of the uh, big trade shows are canceling or postponing as well, and I've I've heard um, actually one of the people that listens to the podcast, he he makes like graphic art for big trade shows, and you know it's his business is seriously suffering. So I feel like the this pandemic is definitely having an economic impact that has a lot of ripples to it. It does. It does. Um, it's really, yeah. uh, well, I'm, I'm not worried about uh, health uh, still uh, yet. Mm, right. It's, it's, the cases here in Italy are growing, but it's, uh, it was somewhat expected because mm-hmm. they, they discovered the virus that had been going around for, for already for a, quite a few weeks. Uh, so now they're doing more tests, and the tests are discovering uh, those cases that were infected maybe one or two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Right, So there's going to be a peak, and then the peak is, is going to, to go down like happened. it happened in China. Uh, mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. government is mm-hmm. taking measures. Uh, it's those measures that are impacting the economy. But they're mm-hmm. inevitable. Mm-hmm. So what can you do? Yeah, yeah, no, it's tough. I, I mean, how do you how do you combat mass hysteria and you know people? I don't know. Like I've been seeing people post memes, you know, all over social media about it, and it's it's kind of interesting. You know, I've got a, somewhat of a background in public health, and it's just it's just interesting to see how people are reacting to this thing, not really having a whole lot of knowledge about how these sorts of things evolve over time but yeah i think it's so so much in the early stages i think it's hard for people to to understand where where it could possibly end yeah um, and it is a serious thing so uh, i had a discussion but I don't think- day on on facebook with a friend she was reposting an article from uh, <laughs> from a reputable news source but the article was completely wrong they just completely mistook the numbers Mm. Just turning the numbers around and me, and because of that, they were making it appear as the, the situation was much more critical than it actually is. So, well, yeah, I mean, crazy news sells more advertising, right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to learn a little bit about what you've been going on in terms of your photography lately. I know that you recently picked up a large format film camera and. You've been shooting digital forever, I think, and um, it's a it's kind of a new new thing for you. And I'm guessing it's opened your eyes to all kinds of different things. So I'd, I'd love to hear what that journey has been like for you so far. Well, it's a, it's a new old thing because I mean I'm old enough to have started photographing when there was only film. <laughs> the, <laughs> right. Digital came later. Uh, I've always had like the kind of a desire to. To go back to film, at least in part, right? Mm-hmm. To, to experiment with film, uh, but uh, I didn't want to go back to film with the thirty-five millimeter format. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's let's put it like that. I believe that uh, in pretty much every respect, if you're talking about small format like thirty-five millimeter, digital beats analog hands down. Uh, if you if you don't consider the romantic aspect of I don't know some people love going around with a with a small pocket film camera uh, or even a Leica, but I'm I'm really much about the, the image quality. And if you look at digital in terms of image quality, 
digital in 35 millimeter format, or even I, I, I'm shooting with uh, Fujifilm cameras digital, and they're APS-C, so they're even smaller than 35. But if right. you compare the photos side by side, digital is so much cleaner, uh, sharper. You can manipulate the colors as much more. Uh, it's so much more convenient and practical, not to mention the, the cost. Sure. That, to me, uh, I didn't want to, to go back to shooting film with 35 millimeter. But I was always attracted to, to larger formats, uh, medium formats, and even large. And let's admit it, I always had this maybe romantic uh, image of the Ansel Adams type of photographer going <laughs> around the wilderness with a big tripod and a big view camera with the black cloth. And so that, that, that was part of the appeal, uh, something in, in trying something different. A uh, yeah. big source of inspiration is, um, you know, QT Luang? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, he, he did this, his book about the, the U.S. national parks. And yeah, Treasured Lands. Most of it was shot... Yeah, treasured lands. Most of it was shot with uh, large format film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always heard about the, the look of large format and everything. So just to, because I wanted to maybe get inject some new life into into my photography, try something different. Uh, I I saw an ad for a used uh, lean of four by five view camera on a in a store in Milan, and I said hmm, maybe I should. Just right now, dive into it and, and get the camera, and that that would, was the start of uh, of an adventure. <laughs> Let's put it like that. Right, <laughs> I, I, I discovered all the things I didn't know about that medium. Yeah, I was gonna say I, it's it was probably it was probably felt a lot like the first time you picked up a digital camera, right? You're like, what the heck am I doing? <laughs> Uh, no, it, it was it was different because, as I said, I was a, I still am a very much a, a geek. Uh, yeah. Working in IT, so to me, uh, digital is is about software, is about computer. I mean, a, a digital camera is largely a computer built around uh, a small sensor. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, in a way, was uh, was was kind of familiar. Sure. Um, this going back to film, uh, but especially going back to large format, meant discovering that it's completely different from shooting sheet film. For one thing, is completely different from shooting roll film, right? Uh, Thirty-five millimeter film. You, you load the cartridge, you load the, the roll into the camera, uh, you advance and press the button, and the camera I was using had a built-in meter. And just just to give you an idea, I went I. To, to the store to to pick up the camera that I had ordered, and I was talking with the with the owner. The owner is a big. Um, just give a shout out to the to the store if anyone is listening from Italy or Milan, uh, they probably know about this place. It's called New Old Camera. It's kind of the the place to go to in Milan for people who are looking for new and old uh, photographic equipment. And the owner, who, who is a Japanese guy, is but he's been living in Italy for many years. He's very passionate about all things photography, of course. And so he was uh, enthusiastic about the fact that I was buying that, that camera and he started talking to me about it. And and then he said, uh, do you have uh, film holders? And I said, what? Do you need <laughs> film holders? 
I said, sure, you need feel more than this, you didn't know. And I said, no, actually, I had no idea. I hadn't, honestly, I had no idea how I would load film into the camera. I thought there was some kind of mechanism. And I said, no, you need film holders. So, uh, and I said, okay, do you have film holders in the store? And he said, no, not at this moment. So he sent me to another another shop where they had a couple of film holders. So I, 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 I got a couple and I realized how much they cost. And I said, holy cow, <laughs> this is going to be expensive. <laughs> Just a little piece of plastic and metal to hold two sheets of film was, I don't know, 50 euros or 70, $60 or something. I said, oh. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then, you, and then you have to buy the film, which is crazy too, right? Uh, yeah, film, of course, is crazily expensive. Uh, just for people who don't know, uh, I mean, I've got the cheapest film I got with some black and white shit film, which goes for about one euro. That's one point ten, one point one dollars, US dollars uh, a sheet, one sheet. So for one photo, and it goes up to maybe six euros if you get professional wow. color negative or slide film. I'll talk about putting skin in the game. <laughs> Like every time you push the shutter, it's like, oh, there goes $5. <laughs> and I was reading, um, I got some books and I was reading articles online and, and videos and so on. I said, you know, everybody, I mean, the landscape photographers, the favorite film they used or they still use when they want to photograph landscape with vivid colors and great sharpness is Fuji Velvia especially Fuji Velvia 50. I said, maybe I should get some Fuji Velvia 50. And I learned that Fuji Velvia 50 can only be found in Japan. Huh. It's not exported out of Japan. You cannot get it on, in Europe. You can only get it in Europe or the US if you order it from somebody from Japan. Huh. So you can find it on eBay, for example. Hmm. And a box of uh, 20 sheets of Fujifilm Velvia on eBay can sell for $150. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> you can probably find it for less in Japan. In fact, I went to, to Tokyo and I got some, some Velvia there. Uh, it was Velvia 100, not 50, because I could not even find Velvia 50 in a shop there. I, I toured a couple of three or four different camera stores, but I only could find some Velvia 100. Right. How has, um, how has entering the large format arena change the way you think about your photography oh you need to be much more careful right <laughs> they, they said so right but what, what does it what, what changes for most people i was hearing is the fact that you need to be much more methodical and careful when you should because it uh, one thing they said it, it, it's because it takes time right it takes time to set up the camera uh, you have to frame and focus through uh, uh, the ground glass in the back which is not easy you're seeing everything upside down and inverted left to right. So framing is quite unnatural. In fact, I got a few not perfectly framed shots because it was hard to see. Um, focusing is totally manual, of course. Exposure is totally manual, so you need uh, an external meter. And I started with using my digital camera in spot meter mode as my meter. It's not really, I mean, you're already carrying a lot of uh, weight when you carry a, a view camera with a tripod and lenses and everything. Carrying also a digital camera just to use as a meter. So I got an external meter and you need to, to learn how to, to point and meter with it and do the readings and convert and 
take into account things like uh, reciprocity failure if your uh, exposure time is long. So it takes some time to set up. Uh, but you also learn to be very much methodical because mistakes are expensive. <laughs> and, and I made a lot of mistakes beginning. So uh, they're expensive because film costs, because developing film costs. Uh, I'll, I'll say a few words about developing uh, in a few minutes, but also because uh, you don't shoot a lot of film because it's expensive. So you end taking up a few frames. Um, right. And if you if you botch them, then it's not like with digital and just because you can you can shoot a hundred photos of a scene and you hope to get to come back with a good one. And if you're shooting that kind of film, you shoot a few, a handful, maybe a couple, and right. if you get get those wrong. And and you took the those in, in some remote location, you're not going back there soon. So the cost right. is uh, completely not having any images. That's the, the real cost. Yeah, I was, I was going to say too, it seems like that would be an interesting uh, psychological effect on on the photographer. Like, I, I don't know, I, I feel like I would have a lot of anxiety about yeah. messing up a photograph, especially like you said, if I was in a remote location or in a place that is hard to get to that I wouldn't necessarily go back to again. <laughs> I, I the effect is basically to go back to your question is that uh, it it um, forces you to make every press of the shutter count yeah so you yeah. become much more concerned about what you're what you're framing that you're framing it correctly that you're exposing it correctly that everything is in perfect focus and everything and of course the result is that your rate of keepers so to speak becomes uh, Hopefully, <laughs> when I stop making stupid mistakes, uh, it will it will increase, and I will get more meaningful images. Have you um, have you gone back and used your digital camera since you've picked up the large format? Well, yes, definitely. Have um, you have I'm you found still, that uh, going hybrid? <laughs> yeah, have you found that you're taking more time with the digital camera now too? No, I'm taking less time with the digital camera actually. Uh, oh, interesting. <laughs> uh, because uh, also, also of what I said, right? I've got uh, another job. So uh, my time for photography is still limited. Mm. So mm -hmm. it's not like uh, I was uh, just sitting idle and thinking, oh, I might go take a photo and now. But so, yeah, maybe at the beginning, I, I started just, just to experiment, just to learn with the tool. I would just go, maybe go out uh, around my, my, my city here or even in the city and taking photos of subjects I had already photographed many times, or as it always so often happens, you don't photograph what is familiar to you because you've seen it all your life. Uh, but I said, okay, let, let's go out with the camera and shoot some familiar subjects. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'm not mm -hmm. adding to the complexity of uh, using that medium. I'm not adding the complexity of finding uh, another good subject. I've got subjects mm. around me. I'll go photograph them. Yeah. So yeah, in that that respect, yes, I've used the. Uh, I've been photographing more. That makes sense, um, especially as a now right now, since you're kind of learning and honing in the craft of using that style of camera. That seems to be a good approach in terms of pro doing familiar subjects and um, spending time just honing in on the the craft side of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so 
tell us tell us about your experience with the development process. Uh, so the experience was driven by the fact that I soon also realized that in order to get film developed, of course, you cannot go to a, to a lab. Like I have some labs here in, in, in town where you can just bring your 35 millimeter roll. And that's pretty much it. Uh, and they will send it somewhere else to develop. Right. But where do you develop four by five film, shit film? You, you don't go to a, a camera store, at least not here. Mm-hmm. So there were some um, some people who do this development uh, in Milan, which I, I live close to Milan in a smaller city, but uh, if I need something like that, I need to go to Milan. So go to Milan, uh, find somebody who would develop it for me, go to Milan to bring the film to them after having learned how to properly unload the film in the dark and put it in a, in a sealed box so it doesn't get any light on it. Right. Go, go, to, go to Milan, get the film, uh, go to, give the film to somebody to develop and then uh, come back a few days later to pick it up. And aside from the cost of travel, I was paying three, three or more euros per sheet of film, <laughs> right? So that pretty much doubles so, the cost per yeah. So I said, let, let's ex- let, let's think about what it takes to develop film at home. And it turns out it's actually much easier than I imagined because I had this image in my my mind of uh, having a de- having to dedicate a whole room to to make a dark room, make everything uh, uh, light sealed and everything. And it turns out that that's not the case. You don't have to do that. You can develop uh, in um, in the light. As long as you use a tank, so a tank is just a box mm. around the cylinder, and you need to load the film in, in darkness into the cylinder, and for that you can use uh, what is called a changing bag, which is a bag with two holes to fit your arms in, and you load the film into the tank in inside the bag, so it's completely dark. But then when it's loaded in the tank, the tank is completely light sealed against the light, and you can pour the liquids in it. So then you do everything uh, in daylight. There's no problem. So it's actually not that complicated. Um, years ago, you needed to mix your own chemicals and do those kind of stuff. Now you get pre-mixed chemicals. You just have to dilute them in water. And you just have to follow the instructions. It's yeah. actually easier than you thought. But it's still easy to, to make mistakes. For example, uh, that Velvia film that I got from Japan, I loaded four sheets into into one uh, tank because a, a tank of four by five holds four sheets that you can develop at once. And for a slide film, you need to use four solutions in a specific order. You need to use, to use first what is called the first developer and then the color developer and then the bleaks and then the stabilizer. Now, of course, the first developer is meant to be used first. What happens <laughs> if you pour the color developer in before the first developer is you completely ruin your film. <laughs> <laughs> it so sounds like had, you're speaking from experience. <laughs> I had four sheets that I had taken in Rome. I, I did a trip to Rome. Uh, I said I, I photographed Rome many times. I love it as a, as a city to photograph. And I photographed subjects that I already photographed in digital and uh, maybe a couple that I hadn't with with film then i came home and i completely ruined four sheets of film which now i will not be it's it's like coming home from a trip with a a memory card and completely destroying the memory card making images unrecoverable right what you do okay rome is not that far it's a three-hour train ride from here but still 
I don't go to Rome every day to, to take those pictures again. I will have to wait to do it again. So that that's, yes. was another one of my stupid mistakes. <laughs> one that you probably won't make again. <laughs> no, now I've, I'm very careful to labeling my bottles of solutions. Uh, I don't know why. I was just nervous. I mean, it, it was one of the first time I was developing slide film. Mm. So I was just nervous and I just... Uh, use the wrong bottle yeah so when you went down this path of going with the large format film did you have something in mind that you hoped to accomplish with it or were you just wanting something new to challenge you um, i didn't have anything specific in mind i i think i i want to use the camera mainly for two things um, because i'm inspired by a couple of not a couple, a lot of photographers, like masters of the past, or even the present, like Qt Luang. Um, and the genres that, that I want to pursue with it are especially landscape photography, which for me also includes cityscape photography, a lot of photography mm -hmm. in cities, and, uh, and portrait. portrait. Mm. I mean, the, I got this, uh, people like Richard Avedon, right, who did a, a ton of work, almost all of, all of his work was on large format film. So to me, that's, that's a great inspiration. Uh, or uh, Cecil Beaton is another great photographer that I admire. I've got a couple of his books. And I want to get photos, especially the portraits, with that timeless look, which I think large format can still give you. There's a difference there with respect to, to smaller formats. It's due to the, uh, to the fact that the, the transitions... Uh, how the foreground transitions into the background, that, that kind of, I cannot explain it differently than the kind of look that you get with with large format that you cannot, just cannot get, or cannot get as easily with smaller formats. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially with that depth of field. Um, you do a, a lot of uh, traveling in your photography and uh, what I've, noticed is that you spend a lot of time uh, with the people in the places that, that you photograph. And it seems like uh, getting photographs of people in their natural environment um, and, you know, in getting images that kind of convey a sense of culture is, is a big part of your photography. Yeah. Um, how has the uh, process of getting to know a culture when you travel how has that impacted uh, your photography over time? Um, I don't know. That's that's a very it's a good question. It's also a tough question. Um, I don't know if it has in, impacted my photography. I think it has been kind of a bidirectional, two way relationship between uh, photography and uh, getting to know a culture and the people uh, of a given country. Mm. Um, photographing people has impacted the way I relate myself to those people. Mm -hmm. Let's put it like that. Um, uh, I, I learned that in order to get good photos of people, I needed to go beyond just being the tourist with a camera around their neck, which just goes around and snaps photos of people on the market or on the street. Uh, you need to, to get more intimate uh, to use a word, maybe intimate is not the right word, but you need to create some kind of uh, connection mm -hmm. with those people to get a really, a really good photograph. You need to have connection, which is not what happens with most tourists, right? 
they right. see some interesting subject, they just nap and never even look the subject in the eye. Right. Maybe because they are shy, uh, because they, they think they might be intruding, they don't want to be seen, so they just quickly snap and go, which sometimes uh, it has a place, but uh, I like to, to create a connection with the subject, to interact with them, to talk to them. So, and I think that makes my photos more interesting. So I think that it's not that learning about other culture has impacted my photography. Maybe, be, yeah, it has made them, I hope it has made them more interesting, but that my photography has impacted the way I relate to other cultures. I tend to be more conscious of cultural norms, for example. Mm-hmm. Be try to to learn to speak at least a few of the, the words of the language of the country I'm in, just right. because I can relate better. It almost seems like the camera is a vehicle by which you use to get a better sense of a culture and appreciate it on a deeper level. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that that was uh, at least my case. Mm-hmm. At least my case, yes. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, that's something uh, I've... Also, um, uh, I mean, there, it, it's kind of a, a of a tool for getting to know the, those cultures more closely. Because I have a, I have an excuse to go and interact with somebody because I want to take their photos. Right. right? So I can go to to a workshop or a market or people are working or people are just having their um, walking around and wanting to take their photo and asking many times to take their photo. Uh, is an occasion to go into the the place of work, mm-hmm. which before I would have no excuse to go there. So why do you want to come in here? I don't know. I just want to look. Okay. But why do you want to come in here? Because I want to take some photos. That makes more sense. <laughs> so it, <laughs> yeah. allows me to, it allows me to to have a way to, to start a conversation because right. the pretext of the conversation is, is the photo, is the act of taking the photos. And people sometimes are interested why do you want to take a photo of me it happens uh, more uh, rarely these days because uh, people in many countries are accustomed to be being accustomed to be photographed by many people mm-hmm. uh, in other places i had these people at genuine surprise that somebody wanted to photograph them mm. <laughs> so that that was the start of a conversation yeah have you have you noticed large differences in cultures around their willingness to partake in a photograph? Uh, I don't know if I've seen a difference in uh, over the years that I've been taking photos, but uh, I hear that definitely there are places where uh, I had this, especially from conversation with friends. Uh, yes, there are places where um, people have become uh, a bit uh, weary. Of being seen as the like the animal in a zoo where they they just are there and people uh, tourists come with the with a camera and take a photo and never interact never show any interest in their uh, in their lives that they said well if if we're not getting anything out of this and other people are getting photos we might as well ask for money mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. If you want a photo you're not even interested in what I do and then pay me yeah we've We've seen a lot of that over the last probably six or seven years where there's various cultures where like that's a big part of their tourism in terms of kind of these orchestrated and fabricated 
uh, I don't know, scenes of, of the, of them, mm-hmm. you know, portraying what their culture looks like. I'm thinking of like the fishermen in like Vietnam or, or I guess like Indonesia or those kinds of places. And then I'm thinking of, uh, like the, the Eagle guys and Mon- mm-hmm. horse riders mm-hmm. in Mongolia, um, you know, where it's like, yeah, I'm sure that's part of their culture, but now it's like this big kind of uh, tourism-driven event type thing. That's, uh, yeah, it's very much a phototourism-driven thing, probably, yeah. in some respect. I mean, those, those shots are obviously set up, right? Which is not necessarily a bad thing, but uh, the only bad thing is that you end up seeing the same cormorant fisherman from China in 20,000 different photos, but it's still the same cormorant fisherman <laughs> right? <laughs> posing for the photographer. And it's probably not fishing anymore just because it's more lucrative to, to get to be photographed. I, I don't know. I'm just imagining and, and I've never been there. I have a, there's a very good article. Maybe I'll send you a link to it uh, by my friend, uh, Matt Brandon. Do you know Matt? I don't. No. So uh, if you if you want to interview him, I recommend Matt Brandon. He's a, a travel photographer, and uh, he a few years ago had a great article about this about this this thing here about uh, why. But uh, what is the correct question to ask? Is not about uh, should we photograph these people? Why are people asking for money? But the correct question is more about. Why is this happening? And it's mm-hmm. happening because of the way we, let's say we Westerners, have started behaving with respect to those people. So uh, I will I will send you a link if you can include it in the show notes. That would be great because yeah, absolutely. It, it, to me, it really hits the gives the correct answer. Hits the nail on its head, as they say yeah. about this. Well, it's it's interesting. I I can't remember what contest it was but i remember seeing some guy won a contest for a photograph of i want to say it was of a of a girl or something in vietnam or something like that but there was like some behind the scenes footage where it was really just a tour of photographers who had all there to take the exact same photo of the same model Mm -hmm. um and you know of course that was never disclosed in any of the um (laughs) The, the photographer's notes to the contest, but once it was revealed, I think it definitely changed the way people saw the photograph and, and how it's interesting how that happens where in all genres of photography, whether it be landscape or, or, you know, travel or, or portraiture or, or you know, a documentary where if the, the story behind the photograph reveals that it wasn't necessarily what you thought it was, it changes the way people think about the image. <laughs> yeah, it never, it never, almost never is. Um, uh, I think I've seen that that video. There was a, like a line of photographers in a yeah. rice paddy with a, with a person that was working in the paddy, and it was not just that fact. That, okay, that that's pretty much every interesting subject you can expect to find a line of photographers photographing it. It was the fact that the way the workshop or tour seemed to be organized was that there was the, let's call them the instructor, had a, a megaphone or something, and he was just directing everybody. Right? Mm-hmm. So, okay, put your tripod here, use the settings, and then take a photo, which to me 
let's let's just say it's not my style of organizing photo tours. <laughs> uh, right. I, I try not to. I, I know some people need instructions, and they come on a photo tour slash workshop because they need some guidance. But I, I don't want to give them like, okay, here's the spot. Use this focal length. Use this aperture, this shutter speed, and all you have to do is press the shutter because I will tell the subject to pause. Three, two, one, everybody click. Okay. Now, yeah. That's great. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, as a as a photographer, I I I have a really hard time um, putting myself in the shoes of the people that are taking those tours. Like, what are they getting out of that experience? I just don't exactly know. Um, I can only presume that it's, you know, they got an image in their memory card that they think looks nice. Uh, but wow, I mean, geez. No, that, that's that's not my, my modus operandi. Uh, just just to give you an example, we just re, I returned recently from Venice where I do my uh, yearly Venice Carnival worship slash yeah. tour. And aside from the various people with masks and costumes, which are just there to pose to be photographed. So and sometimes that can be a bit contrived because everybody ends up taking a lot of photos of the same masks and so on, even though there's a ton of them. But I always try to... Uh, to give some different experiences because Venice is not just about the carnival. Uh, there's a lot of people who live in Venice, who work in Venice that have nothing to do with the carnival. And one of the, those people is this, uh, this guy that I got to know a few years ago and his work is to make uh, puppets. He makes wooden puppets, uh, which he sells to people. And he's, he's a great craftsman, craftsman, great artist, I believe. And every year we organize a visit to his workshop. And he tells the story of how he got started with that kind of uh, art and how he creates his creation. And then he's happy to be photographed. But I never say, oh, now you pick up one of your puppets and you hold it like there in the light and then everybody stand there and take his photo. I let everybody wander around the workshop, take their photos, uh, follow their own inspiration maybe give a few ideas here and there, but not try to to make it too much of something that I set up for my customers. Sure. Right? I yeah. give them the opportunity, but I, I try to let them exploit it and create with their own vision. And of course, I, I'm always there to help, but I don't want to have everything set up and you just have to click the shutter. No, that's, that's not fun. Yeah, that... I mean, I think I understand the appeal of that for some people. It's, but it's like I, you want people to have that experience of that epiphany of like, oh my gosh, I just, I saw something that was interesting to me and I got to create an image out of it. And I think, you know, that act of creation is, I think, kind of the ultimate experience in photography that I think you're potentially missing out on if that's what your experience is, is like. Um, you know, speaking about sh people yelling the shutter speed and aperture and telling them when to push the button, like that's, you're kind of robbing somebody of that experience in some ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, yeah. Well, so one of the things I saw on your website, which really, uh, I don't know, just drew my attention and I kind of get a little chuckle out of it, is uh, you have a, um, like a free ebook that you let people download 
And then you talk about kind of marketing tips and things that you've learned over the years. And one of the things you say in there is that uh, that marketing can be challenging, honest, and fun. And I got a little chuckle out of that because I don't. I, I think I could definitely agree with the first one. It's definitely challenging. Um, I'm not sure what you meant by honest, and I almost never have found it that fun. <laughs> Although. <laughs> You know, the re- reaping the rewards of good marketing is always fun. You know, getting getting paid. But um, uh, so I guess a kind of a two parter here. You know, what have you learned about marketing over the years, and why did you want to describe it as challenging, honest, and fun? <laughs> yeah, I, I would probably have to go back to that book which I wrote a few years ago and try to to, remind, to remember why I said that or why I wrote that. It's probably in the book, uh, but I'll try to, to remember. Uh, so marketing for me was it was another learning experience, like another epiphany. I said, uh, yeah, I, I told you right the story of how we started with uh, with this venture of doing photo tours because we, uh, we were very naive about that. We started out very naive. We said uh, with my friend, uh, you know everything about Greece, so you can bring people everywhere in, in the country to any island and you know it. We know a lot about photography. Yeah, how hard could this be? Together and we just create a, a little website and people will flock to it and we'll start Absolutely. To, and then for two years nothing happened I got some requests to do some private tours and so on but I realized mm, there's something here that's missing here so I realized that the missing part was the marketing part well I, I, I was not completely naive about that I knew that I needed to do some marketing I need to put to create a website to to maybe start using social media to, to share about the tours that we were organizing and so on. But uh, that was just the scratch in the surface. And of course, it was not effective at all at the start. And I didn't have a marketing expert hired. I didn't have an agent. So I had to do everything myself. So I, I did, okay, I need to learn marketing, how to properly market so that people want to buy my stuff, my services. Right. And uh, I soon realized, well, I realized this long ago, not just about marketing, that uh, the best way to learn something is to teach it. Uh, I know I know it sounds like, oh, you're, you're teaching something that you don't really know. No, that's not the case. The, the thing is, um, anything you know, even if you know a little bit of it, there's always somebody who knows less than you. Right. So you can teach them something. You, you don't have to pretend to be the biggest marketing guru in the world. But if you've learned something, you can, let, let's say, not teach it. I don't say I'm going to teach marketing anytime soon. In fact, that's just a, a small free ebook. I'm just sharing what I've learned. That, that's the, the, the thing about the, the ebook, right? This is what I've learned by learning it on my own skin by the mistakes I've made, like with film. And right now I'm doing a series of YouTube videos about film photography, about large format film photography. It's not because I'm I'm trying to, it's not a course. I'm not trying to teach a course. I'm just sharing my experiences, sharing what I've learned. So I said, I'll put in this little ebook, uh, sharing what I've learned about marketing. Um, that, that was the, the genesis of it. And, and I studied a lot. I studied, I bought dozens of books. I took courses. I read hundreds of articles about marketing and followed YouTube videos and so on. Mm. I recently took the, uh, if you, you know Seth Godin? Yeah, 
course. Okay, so probably people have become bored of me mentioning Seth Godin <laughs> every other podcast. <laughs> I always get a chance to mention because I really love the guy. I've got a rather few of his books and I recently took his, uh, he has a course which is called the Marketing Seminar, mm. which I've learned a ton from it. So, and I, I learned from Seth Godin that, yeah, marketing is challenging. This is the first part. And as you said, it's pretty obvious. We, especially for us, we consider ourselves artists. Even I, as a background, as a software developer and IT architect, whatever you want to call it, so which is not very artistic, technical, but I was never into sales. I was never considered sales to be something that I wanted to do. But I always worked for companies that had salespeople and marketing managers. So I didn't have to care about that. Not too much. But with the photography tours, it was a single person business. So I had to be my own, to do my own marketing in first person, unless I wanted to hire somebody, which I'm going to do, but that's, that comes later. So that, that was the challenge to learn how, how marketing works. How you convince people to, to do it. Uh, it's honest, that is something that I got from uh, from Seth Godin, right? Uh, we are, as artists, as I was saying, we don't like to talk about marketing. We don't like to talk about money. We don't like to talk about sales and so on because we think that some, somehow pollutes our, our art, pure art, right? We have this idea of the artist, right. something who is... It somebody sell who itself. doesn't care about money doesn't sell out right no marketing can be honest can be you don't pretend to be somebody else because people will buy from people they know they trust and they love mm-hmm. and they will know and trust they, they will see through your fake persona if you try to be that so your marketing needs to be honest and your marketing uh there's a, a phrase like a mantra that Seth Godin says that is people like us do things like this. So it means that people will do the things and will end up buying do the things that other people like them do. So you need to be like one of them. So this means being honest. This means being your your true self, not pretend to be somebody else. Of course. Gotcha. Uh, and, and you know, I find it that it was actually fun to uh, to learn about marketing, to learn about the, the psychology of people. Um, Mm-hmm. I know just just me probably, but I find it uh, really fascinating. Yeah, Again, I used to learn, learning a new thing. I used to enjoy social media in that way. You know, I almost felt like it was kind of a game to see, like, oh, if, if I phrase it this way or ask a question or like, how do I get more people to like a photo? Or, but now it's just I, I don't know. I guess I get so disgusted by that whole like you know begging for likes and comments that it's. Mm-hmm. I just kind of shy away from even thinking about it that way anymore. But I used to think of it as as being fun. Uh, I I'm curious though. I'm wondering if no, you struggle. Just to, sorry, sorry too, but just to be no uh, searching for likes and comments on social media is not the fun part. No, <laughs> like, no, it's not. <laughs> no, the parts which I which I think are fun. It's definitely. Yeah, I was gonna say that's definitely not fun. No. <laughs> Um, but Sorry, you were I was, saying? Yeah, I was wondering if you struggle with this too. Like, how do you balance, um, you know, having limited time, how do you balance the need to market versus the need to, or the desire to create? That's that's where I always struggle. It's like, oh, I can, 
I can put out more work or I can go take more photos or I can sit down in front of my computer and hammer out a bunch of emails and, you know, social media posts and things like that. And it's, I know which one I'd rather do, but um, when you have limited time, I feel like the marketing sometimes falls to the side. Uh, that's probably why I do my most of my marketing activities at night. <laughs> <laughs> well, Unless you're not a big night like photographer. A, no, if, I, if I'm traveling somewhere, if I'm on a trip, yes. I yeah, do love yeah. photographing at night. I, I especially love photographing at the blue hour. But if I'm yeah, working absolutely. from home, uh, yeah, I spend most of my time is dedicated to not just marketing. I mean, it's whole business, the whole business part of photography. Uh, I'm sure you you know, right? And many people have probably mentioned this on your podcast and they've mentioned it in, on my podcast that some people think that the life of the of the photographer, especially the landscape or travel photographer, is a, is a life of being outdoors and taking photos most of the time. And it's not. It's maybe 20% out taking photos and 80% working on the business. Right. Whether it be marketing, accounting, uh, uh, customer relationships, call it whatever you want, just or even just updating the website with your latest photos. That's that's the business part, and it's taking, let's say, eighty percent of the time. There's mm-hmm. mm-hmm. no no escaping that if you want to to have a photography business. No, I think I think that sounds about right. Um, I, I feel like that's why over the last two years I've taken far fewer photographs, but I'm doing much better financially as a photographer because I'm investing that time more on the business side than I am on the creation side. Um, but I do miss, I do miss, you know, the amount of time I used to spend taking the photos too. So it's a tough balance. And one of the things that I, that I find it, that I think is fun doing, and I'm sure you, you find it too, but it's also great for marketing is having a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Right? You have two uh, of them, right? I have two, yes. Well, one is uh, currently on hiatus, but I have two. And I, I write about this in the, in the ebook. Uh, if you want to, uh, it's, not, it's not direct marketing, direct marketing, right? I don't use the podcast to advertise my tools much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe a quick mention if the topic is related, but it's, that's not the main thing. It's not advertising, right? There's a difference between marketing and advertising. So it's not direct marketing that I do with the podcast, but it's very much indirect. It's also it's all about brand marketing. So getting your name out, getting people recognize your name. Uh, and it's also about networking, which is an important part of business, of our business. <clears throat> Sorry. I did joint ventures on photo tours with people that I had known because I invited them to be guests on the podcast. Mm-hmm. I was. I, I said I was recently in Venice for the for the, my workshop there, and I had um, as a guest as a guest instructor Darlene Hildebrandt, who was a guest on my podcast twice, mm-hmm. and we also did another interview while in Venice, where she's been on my podcast three times. So that that was a, a connection that grew out out of the podcast, and yeah. because I got to know Darlene because she was frequently on Twip, you know the the podcast Twip. Uh, she was a, a frequent guest there, and she was talking about travel photography. And I was wanted to do a travel photography podcast. And I said, uh, "Oh, who can I interview? Let's see who are the some names of travel photography photographers I know." Oh, 
is Darlene. She's been on Twip. She sounds interesting. I will invite her. And then our connection and our relationship grew out of the podcast, out of another podcast, and then out of my podcast, for example. That's just one example, but there's many like that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I feel like my podcast has opened so many doors for me, just in terms of building relationships with people, um, getting connected with people I never would have been connected to. It's it's definitely, um, and what was interesting for me <laughs> is that, that I never had any goals for my podcast in terms of what it would do in terms of marketing. It was always just a passion project. Mm-hmm. Um, and every all of the kind of indirect impacts of the marketing side of things kind of just happened uh, organically. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which has I mean, been really fun. <laughs> I was always aware of the fact that it, a great part of marketing for us is content creation. Yeah, absolutely. You need to, you need to create content. And said, okay, yeah, it doesn't have to be a podcast. It can be a YouTube channel. It can be a, an active blog site or it could be, exactly. you know. But then you know, I realized that having a, podcast, having a podcast was a great way to put out content. And it was a very a medium that is growing in popularity a lot. It's just podcasts popping up everywhere on every topic, right. uh, especially photography. <laughs> uh, but then I realized that it was an excellent tool for creating connections, so yeah. that, which is also fun to do. So that's my fun marketing part. Maybe. Doing a podcast is fun marketing. It is like with you. It was not about marketing and advertising and so on. It was about creating content that people might enjoy. And then realizing that it was a great marketing tool. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so you have two podcasts. You have the Traveling Image Makers podcast, and then you also have the Closing the Gap podcast. And I think for both of those, you um, you have like a co-host, right? Yes. So the Traveling Image Makers, uh, I just mentioned that the URL, you can find it at ttim.photo, uh, is my podcast has been running for more than three years, I believe. We are at just published episode 172. Uh, we had a bit of a hiatus this summer, just trying to reconsider the content and everything. But now we started publishing it regularly every week. Uh, and it's with my, my co-host there is Ralph Velasco. Yeah. Who, by the way, I got to know through another podcast and I listened to this guy and I said, oh, he has something interesting to say. I will invite him to be a guest on my podcast. So it all starts from that. It all starts from the podcast. Uh, the other one is Closing the Gap, which is currently on hiatus. Uh, we need to find some time and some more, uh, organize our topics, which I'm doing with my friend Fabrizia Costa. She's Italian. She's an Italian photographer. She's portrait event, uh, those kind of, of nothing to do with travel and landscape. But she's a great photographer in her, uh, in her field. And mm. I she uh, I, I realized I got to know her through a common friend and realized we had we resonated a lot on on the things we were thinking and saying and that was uh, the the podcast closing the gap is about uh, do you know the what the gap is about what's the gap it it comes from um, um, one uh, Ira Glass who is a radio host radio show host. Yeah, that's American life. Yeah, this this speech about the gap. What's the gap about the fact that we as uh, we want to be artists, and then we start and we start creating some work, be it photographs, songs, paintings, sculptures, whatever, and we realize that there's a gap, 
between what we want to create and what we are actually able to create. <laughs> uh, why this gap? Because if we start doing uh, something creative like photography, it's because we have good taste. We, we see photographs and we understand what makes a good photograph. Intuitively, at least many people do, I hope we do. <laughs> I, I think some people don't realize, <laughs> but some people have good taste. Most people have good taste. I think we all have good taste. And we all have uh, an innate uh, ability to create great things if we apply to them. So we realize that this work that we see and we find it great and we look at our own work and it's lacking. So we see there's this gap and many people just stop there and say, we will never, I will never be able to cross the chasm to, to close the gap. So what it takes to close the gap, it takes the realization that everybody is born with the talent to create something great that you need to, to apply to it. You need to work as uh, was that Malcolm Gladwell say it takes 10,000 hours of practice to do it. You need deliberate practice. You need a certain mindset. And so on. So in the podcast, we talk about this. We talk about uh, what it takes to close the gap, what it takes to, it's not, it's not about the technique. It's not about the marketing. Even though that's a little bit, when you want to close the gap between somebody who creates something and somebody who is able to sell something, then there is also the marketing aspect, but that's maybe will come later. Mm-hmm. It's not about the technique. It's about the, the mindset more than anything else. So all the aspects of this, uh, the, the mindset of a successful artist. And, um, and so it's a very much philosophically rambling type of podcast where we pick a topic and we exchange ideas about that. I love yes. that idea, though. I think it, um, gosh, it, it definitely sounds like it covers a lot of the things that I talk about <laughs> with yeah. some of my friends when we're out, you know, drinking beers and, and hanging out in the field and, if, you know, in between taking photos. It's, you know, like start talking about people that we admire and what makes them different than us. And, you know, you start to realize it's, yeah, they, they've put in the hard work and there's probably just little tiny things that they've done over a long period of time. I think what's interesting too, is in this day and age of, you know, the speed of information, I feel like people have less patience for greatness, you know, like, and I, I feel like I, I definitely have over the years. I've, I've grown more patient once I realized that it, you know, you're not going to be an instant success overnight. Like it takes hard work, and you know, it's not about becoming one of the best photographers overnight. It's like how can I become one of the best photographers over 20 years? You know, it's there. It's, it's different mindset. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so you don't go to a workshop where the instructor tells you how to. Where to put your tripod? Right, right. That that probably isn't going to get you there. <laughs> yeah, no. That that sounds like a really interesting uh, podcast. I can't wait to see you uh, make more of those. Yeah, we we made eighteen episodes. Um, hope to do more. I mean, we've been talking to Fabrizia and saying we should restart it one day. We'll, we'll do it definitely. I love so, it. Do it. Do so it. We, uh, we got some some titles of the episodes uh, like on personal projects so mm. the importance yeah. of doing personal project to revitalize one's creativity don't fear the amateurs which is about the professionals who are always afraid that amateurs will take their job away ignore the critics about how to handle with criticism and so on so just to give you an idea of a few of the topics we 
we we talk about there. Yeah, yeah. Have you found it challenging to to stay on a set schedule of releasing content? Oh yeah, of course. Yes. Yeah, that's uh, it's tough. I, it's tough. I I did it for for the traveling image makers. I we did. I mean, I started myself then with Ralph. Uh, 168 episodes with no interruptions yeah, every single week good. for 168 episodes, which is what's that more than three years? Yeah, yeah. Why did you why did you take a pass? I kind of wanted to change a bit the way the, the podcast was structured mm. and find some more, uh, uh, let's say, stimulating topics. Yeah. Right? That's definitely been one of the hard parts for me is keeping it interesting every week because, you know, especially in a niche like landscape, I mean, there's only so many topics that you can cover every week. But, um, yeah, that's why I've been branching out more to, you know, people like you, people that aren't necessarily even photographers. They're more like in the business side of things. So I think I yeah, think in yeah, some yeah. ways it's kind of fun trying to keep it interesting. You need variety. I mean, so you need consistency, but you also need variety, and that's a hard thing it is to balance. Very hard. And I realized that after a while, you you have, can have so many guests, but if you keep asking the same questions, like, uh, where do you like to shoot? What's in your right. What's your favorite what's your, gear? What's your favorite lens? Uh, <laughs> tends to, to get a bit repetitive, right? So we needed fresh ideas, and now we're we're starting with some fresh ideas. We'll see where we're. Where it goes. Cool. Well, what do you have coming up for your photography tours? I know you mentioned you have a Japan tour. What else do you have coming? Um, so uh, kind of, we'll see how it goes with this virus again. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I'm confident that uh, give it a couple of weeks. Uh, at least in Italy, things will, will be back to normal. But uh, for sure, I'm going to Turkey in October. I'm going to do to Cappadocia, which is a region in central Turkey, which is great for the landscape, but also I have a connection with a photographer there who um, we will go photographing a herd of wild horses and local tribes. That's going to be great. And um, no yeah. stage photos, right? No, oh, okay, a little bit, but again, there's going to be. <laughs> I was just giving you a hard time. I'll be, I'll be <laughs> honest, right? There's going to be some staged moments. Sure. Meaning we will have uh, that herd of horses they're not completely wild they live like they live in the wild uh, they're not in pens but they're owned by people they're like a herd which bring them around and they take them to places we want to photograph them for example right i think there's right. something like, like that um on vesterhorn in iceland isn't there like a bunch of horses that are privately owned there in iceland i don't know i know about the camargue in france they do the yeah. same right. same thing but um so there's going to be some aspect with with people also that we uh, hire especially for that, but it's not going to be like okay now you. This is Take your picture now. You're like more. This is the situation. I'm giving you some hints, and now let your creativity flow, right? Right. No, I love that. And That's great. The, the other one is Japan in November. I'm going to do a fall foliage tour, fall colors tour. Mm. In Japan in November. These are the ones that are very very likely to to happen. If things keep, I mean, if it, this virus thing keeps being uh, contained, let's let's put it like that. And I got this uh, 
tour of Italy in October. It's called Heart of Italy. We're going to do um, not touch so many so much the the main like Venice, Florence, Rome uh, centers, but it's more about going in the countryside, those uh, uh, yeah. countryside landscapes that are, are some of the the things in Italy I love most. Yeah, that sounds awesome. How many t- how many tours do you do in a typical year? Uh, last year, I think I did four or five. Okay, plus okay. a few private ones. I'm always uh, almost always available for private tours of uh, some Italian locations. If people are interested, I do frequently go to places like well Venice again because I know it so well. I've been there dozens of times. So if people want to have a little guided photo tour of Venice, I can do it. I've done uh, the Cinque Terre many times. Uh, I've done Rome. I've done Tuscany. Sure. These are the places where um, I can do... I've done the Dolomites as well. Nice. Yeah. Look, that that must be really hard. I'm just being sarcastic. (laughs) The Dolomites (laughs) looks beautiful. Oh, yeah, I love it. I, I use that, that. That's the first place where I brought my after experimenting with local locations, close locations. Here, I, I went to the Dolomites with the view camera. Nice. The first that's trip awesome. I took with it, and I got some nice photos with it. Oh, even though I only had black and white film, because I was still at the beginning. So okay, let's not just spend too much money on color film. Black and white is cheaper. <laughs> we use that. Oh, good to know. Well, awesome, man. Who who would you recommend our listeners look into and maybe have here on the podcast? So I mentioned before Matt Brandon. Yeah. Uh, I think he used to have a podcast as well. I think now he's, uh, he's doing more YouTube work. Um, he got he had a podcast called The, the Digital Tracker. Okay. And again, Matt, Matt is a friend. We talked many times because he had a podcast and I invited him on the podcast. I know I sound like a broken record. <laughs> uh, Darlene Hildebrand, who I just mentioned. Um, and also because it's uh, it's a bit of a different uh, genre. It's, it's, her work is not about landscape or travel photography per se. She's very much concerned about social issues like immigration, poverty, and so on. Um, uh, Valentina Tamborra. She's Italian. She lives in Milan, very close, and um, she she does some great work. Uh, she she's she's great portrait photographer, but she also does travel photography and especially around social issues. So I recommend you you interview her. Awesome, thank you so much for those recommendations. I appreciate it. Um, well, man, this has been this has been a lot of fun, and um, thanks for for joining me on the show and um i appreciate you having me on your show back gosh that was like probably yeah, what a year and a half ago <laughs> it was maybe two years ago um yeah definitely so you, you should you should be back right well uh, we'll arrange with you'll tell us what's new about you remember you, you we talked about night photography last time you were on the show i, I did yeah yeah we can talk about some other topic cool yeah definitely i've got <laughs> cool man well, thanks again. Well, thanks to Ugo for joining me on the podcast. Hopefully we can find some time for me to join you on your podcast again sometime soon. I'm also going to go download a ton of your Closing the Gap episodes for my upcoming road trip. That sounds like a really fantastic podcast. I wanted to take a quick moment to thank all of the patrons of the podcast. First of all, you are all amazing humans. Seriously. 
I, too, support a variety of things on Patreon, including Guy Tal and another political podcast that I enjoy. I think it's important to financially support the things that provide you value, especially when they are free. I have chosen not to accept ad revenue for this podcast, except for the occasional mention for some of our awesome patrons, because I think it's important not to let corporate interests dictate the type of content that I produce. Plus, who the hell wants to hear an ad for ad for mattresses or stamps on a photography podcast? Not me. All right, well, let's talk about who is coming up on the podcast. I'm really excited to announce some of our upcoming episodes. Next up, we have Clay Bolt. Clay is a conservation photographer specializing in telling the stories of bees and insects. We also have Sarah Lindsay. She is a talented Canadian photographer and Instagram sensation. I'll be also talking with uh, my friend Chris Byrne. He's won lots of awards for his fantastic photos, and he teaches workshops with my friend Gary Randall, who's also a patron. And lastly, we have a really exciting episode coming in April where we'll be recording with a panel of all women photographers, and I'm really looking forward to that one. have a ton of questions and topics all ready to go, so... Uh, thanks to those of you that have been kind of helping me out with that one behind the scenes. And finally, just a quick reminder, if you've always wanted to try out luminosity masks, which you should, I recommend that you try Arc Panel. One of our patrons, Anton Everine, is the software engineer for it, and I promise it's really good. It's intuitive, it's easy, and it's quite fast. My computer's an old piece of crap, and it runs really fast on there, so trust me. Just head to arcpanel.averine, that's A-V-E-R-I-N, dot photo. That's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.